Thanks for listening to the podcast from Jonathan Combs and the preaching team at Eastgate Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Check us out on the web at eastgate.church for more. And now, here's the sermon. Good morning, church. So happy you're here today. Christmas at Eastgate. I hope you're enjoying yourself. Uh, we, we, you know, we did everything we could there to make things interesting for you. Interesting songs, took the lyrics away for a moment for you. Um, just having a good time this morning. Christmas music, I love it and, and like kind of don't love it at the same time. It's so difficult to play. Some of you know this, but anyway, we're, uh, we're finishing up our, our Rediscover uh, Christmas series over the next two weeks, one today and then next week. Just so you know, I know I'm getting, I'm getting various people not sure about what we're doing next weekend. Next weekend, Christmas Eve, 4.30 p.m. That's what we're doing. Christmas morning, no service, okay? So Christmas Eve at 4.30, if you want to join us, we'll do like a candlelight kind of deal is the plan and really low key. So hopefully uh, you won't in on that if you're around. So anyway, we're finishing these next two weeks in this series. And this morning we're talking about this idea of what it means to rediscover the worship. We've talked about this idea that we're getting our anticipation back. We're getting the mystery of Christmas back. But what does it look like to get the worship component back? That, that really is our lifestyle, is, is one of worshiping Christ and what He has done. And that should be the thing that really marks our life. And so how do we get back to that at this time of year where... We have to admit there's a little bit of chaos, like there's, there's kind of chaos around trying to travel and, and trying to shop and whatever it is else it is you're trying to do right now. There's, there's a little bit of a wild stuff going on in your life, and sometimes that can be a real hindrance to your worship. It can cause you to get your values out of balance somewhat. And so this idea of worship is where we want to spend time to, together today. This word is quite frankly not a word we use a whole lot in our day-to-day worship right? Even though people are constantly worshiping stuff. It's like, it's the human way. In fact, I would, I would argue you can look around you at any person you run into anywhere and they worship something. It's just a fact of life. We were made, we were designed for worship. Now the question is, what is it that we worship? What is it that we put all of our value, the, the, the most basic definition would be that you, would, you value and love this the most. You spend the most time, the most of your money, the most of your talents. This is your greatest source of significance. That is worship, right? In fact, Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller writes, Worship is pulling our affections off of our idols and putting them on God. Now that's a choice you make to have right worship. He could have said true worship is this. Because there's a lot of other forms, a lot of various idols, if you will, in our life. So, ironically, Christmas might be the hardest time of year to really talk about this kind of thing. Because there's so many different things that invade our our space and cause us to value many things. In fact, Christmas, although has once been the holiday to celebrate the sun come, the, 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 the birth of Christ Jesus, it's also become... Big business. That's just a fact. We have to face that for what it is. Forbes magazine, in fact, it says, according to Forbes, that retailers in America can expect to make over $1 trillion this year for Christmas. Over $1 trillion. We could fix some stuff with that. I mean, we really, our, 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 our national budget is quite a whack. We could, we could fix that with just our Christmas spending. Although if we did, if we tried to give it to them, they'd just rack up more, I have a feeling. But anyway, that's my opinion. You do with that what you will, but 
That's account, that accounts, just so you know, that accounts for almost a third of the year's profits. They make over, over a third of their year's profits at this time. Over a trillion dollars. Do you feel that tension? I know I do. That, that tension of like, I really, the thing I want to do most at Christmas is just be with my family. And enjoy that, that time of year where we get to just pause. My kids get out of school. We get to take a pause and just hang out. Get to know each other. Work doesn't have quite as high of expectations. Uh, we, we can kind of bring things down a little bit, hopefully. And, but there's this tension that I want to get everything on the list. I want everybody to be happy. For you, it, it, you might be past the point of having to buy kids gifts. Or, or maybe that's never been something that you really struggle with. That's great. But there's all these other tensions of like, I want everything to be perfect. I, I want when my family to come in. I want the house to look immaculate, you know. That's kind of my nature. And yet what I did was I just tore out my kitchen. And so when they come in next weekend, there's nothing like to see in there other than just a mess, an absolute mess. They knew that coming into it. I just want to put that out there. But we have all these tension points. of Like, I want things to be right. And year after year, I want, I want my kids to love it. I want, I want my family to have a good, a good impression of me. We put all of this time. And I'm not saying any of that's bad. In fact, I would say most of that is neutral. But where is your worship? Has that caused you to pull all of your affections away from God and onto your idols rather than the other way around? In the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to be in chapter 2 today, a very famous story, one I imagine most of you are familiar with. And I'm really praying today that God would reveal something new to you in a story that might be familiar, that God would show you something that's for you. And I know he will do that. I'm believing him for that. Because as we look in the Gospel of Matthew, as we look at the story of the birth of Jesus, there's this really troubled political backdrop. The, the Jerusalem area, Israel is in turmoil. And the very beginning of, of Christ's birth, there is a battle for worship. From, from day one, there's a battle for who you worship. And we've got this false king that we're going to reveal here in this story named King Herod. And the challenge here is, to remove that worship from these false kings or these idols and put them on the true king who the, the magi in our story are now looking for. And I believe as we dig in, we're going to discover three steps on how to spend your worship this Christmas on the true king. So let's dig in. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now there's, I want to pause there for a second because I, I do this almost every year. Just so you know, your manger's way off. It's just a fact, it is. If you've got three wise men at the manger, it's just wrong. It's not the case. Feel free to keep them there. But if I come to your house, I'm going to move them to another room. Because at the birth of Jesus, guess what happens? The star appears. There's no way they traveled from afar in moments. Okay, it's not how this went down. In fact, the story's really clear. It says after Jesus was born. You see that? Verse 2, they came saying, the wise men came saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. That part really blows my mind. I could see why King Herod's troubled. Why is all Jerusalem troubled? And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, well, in Bethlehem of Judea, for, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, 
are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star, the star that they had seen when it rose, went before them until it came to a place to to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. They Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Amen. How do we rediscover the worship that belongs to Jesus, to the true king? Here's the first. The first step is this. Recognize the battle for your worship. Recognizing the battle for our worship. It's better to not come into this thing blindly. It's better to not face life just going, oh, everything's hunky-dory, everything's going to be okay. Most of you are fully aware that that's not the case. But what we often miss is that there's constantly a pulling of our affections. That it's in our very nature to worship, and if that's true, then there's constantly things sucking us in, drawing us in to worship things that aren't God. Worship many different things, and that's, that's the thing, the piece of this story that really is unique to me is not just that King Herod was troubled, but that all Jerusalem was troubled with him. Why? Because all of Jerusalem was not expecting true king. They weren't expecting the Savior. In fact, they'd kind of gotten a habit of being comfortable with the things that were. They weren't right. The atmosphere was all wrong. King Herod's not even a Jew. He's not following the codes correctly. If you studied scripture on this, you would see and studied all the Josephus and those who were writing in this time period, you would see that King Herod, this half Edomite, this, this mess of a man is now the client ruler in Israel. Rome has put him as like this, this almost governor type in the area, although he doesn't really have real power. They just kind of allow him to be there Because it was Rome's way. This is how Rome governed its massive empire. It would allow these like puppet kings all throughout, right? It did that here in Israel and all throughout the Middle East and in the top of Africa. This is the way they kept the peace. And honestly, it kind of worked. Because the people thought, well, I mean, he seems to be in charge, although he really had no, no real power. And he's not following the ways of God. He's called Herod the Great oftentimes, and the reason for that is not because he was great in personality or because he was great in some uh, religious sense, but rather he was a builder. That much we can say about Herod, he he supersized the temple. He he, he worked on the temple mount, he worked on the walls around, he, he did a lot of work in making Jerusalem look great. It just wasn't great on the inside. It's so much, this story is so much like we're dealing with what we're dealing with in our culture. From the outside looking in, we got a lot of stuff. Things, things look pretty good over here on this side of the sea. That, that this American nation, we have a lot of prosperity. And yet, what's going on on the inside? That's what's going on here in Jerusalem. Herod the Great 
is not great in spirit. And the people are troubled. The people are troubled because the Magi have come to town asking a strange question. Where is the one born king? That means you guys don't know who he is. Because this guy isn't it. Otherwise, they'd just come in and say, oh, Herod, hallelujah. And they'd no, they come to him asking, where's the one born king? Wow. This Herod, just so you know, you'll, you'll, those history buffs in the room, y'all will love this part. He, he happens to be extremely paranoid. So it's, and that's kind of the nature of so many of these puppet kings and so many of these Caesars and kings of old. You may argue it's kind of the nature of a lot of people in politics, but I don't know. You go wherever you want with that. There's this paranoia about losing power. And before we judge that greatly, we have a little bit of that paranoia too, probably. I think we face it sometimes even as parents. As the kid begins to grow up, as the kid becomes a teenager and then is leaving the house, there's this paranoia that they will just run from everything you taught them. And you recognize that your power is not yours anymore. That this person is an adult now. Some of you are dealing with this in this very moment. And we understand, we have to understand something though. That power was never really ours. We were always a steward of that power, which is God's. And now when that child is grown, we have to say, all right, Lord, I did my best. I tried very diligently to raise them up in the way of the Lord. And you say in your word, and we have to pray this diligently ourselves. You say, raise them up and they will not depart from it. I'm not seeing that yet, God, but I'm believing. Some of us are facing that very power paranoia right now. Maybe this happens at your workplace. All of a sudden, somebody new gets hired and you're like, yeah, I think they hired my replacement. Some of you have been through that. Some of you are facing that, dealing with that. This paranoia that Herod felt caused him to have some of his sons, some of his wives, some of his family members put to death. That's the kind of paranoia Herod was feeling. In fact, Caesar says of him, Caesar Augustus, who's Caesar at this time, says of Herod, it would be better to be his hus than his huias. You can say that with me. Hus, huias. That means nothing to you, but here's what it means. Hus means pig. Huias means son. So it was a play on words, hus to huias. He's saying it would be better to be Herod's pig than his son. Why? Because they don't eat bacon. So it would be better off being a pig than being his very son, who he will kill. Because he's worried about someone usurping his throne. Do you know what happens here after this story? Some of you know this very well. King Herod asks, when did it happen? Where did it happen? How long ago did it happen? Why do you think he's so curious about that? So that he can have an, an extreme genocide right here in the first century. He has every boy under the age of two murdered in this area. That is difficult to imagine. And yet that's what King Herod has done. Because he's afraid, he's paranoid that the one born king would usurp him. Now God works all that out. In fact, as you see in verse 12, God's already working it out. He didn't allow the Magi to go back through Jerusalem. He's protecting his son in this story. The reason is, that's not why he came. He didn't come to die as a babe. He came to save us and to die at a later date for our sin for our sake. And so this is Herod. He's troubled. The people are troubled because they weren't expecting the king, the king who has now come. The word king is in our story four times. It is clearly a big component of what we're dealing with here. And worship is in here three times. The word here for worship is proskuneo. This means literally 
to, to kiss towards. It means to pay homage. This is, this is what the wise men are saying. They've traveled from a long ways that they could pay homage to the one true king. Now, this word magi is the word magoi. It's literally just a transliteration. That's where we get the word magi. It comes from this ancient, this, this Near East terminology. These men are probably, most likely, from Persia or Babylon. And that's really intriguing because that, what that means is while those, those Jewish people, while those Hebrews were in captivity, they probably taught a lot of people their, their, their stuff, their laws, the book. They brought a lot of that stuff with them when they were exiled out of Jerusalem. First, you remember this, Daniel and some of the early guys there, they were exiled to Babylon, and then later Babylon is overthrown by Persia. But in that whole season of 70-some years, they've brought with them their culture and their materials. And what's happened is there's some people that, I wouldn't say these are necessarily believers, but these these are wise men, magi, students, philosophers of ancient religions, of the stars, and they're observing what they've read in the book. This is just so you know, in the book of, of Micah, where they read this piece. And they're, they're looking for things. They're studying things. They don't have nearly the distractions we have today. I made this argument the other day. I, I know I would be better off without television. I, I, I would get so much more done. There's a part of me that really wishes I was born way earlier because I have a pretty sharp mind. It's just easily distracted. And there's so many things that invade my attention. But this time period, reading is one of the most fascinating things to do. There's nothing to watch. Unless you just go out in your backyard and just to see your animals roam about and do crazy stuff. That'd be fun, I guess. I'm sure they did a lot of that. There's lots of work to be done. but They're studying scriptures. They're looking up. Fascinated by the stars. And it wouldn't have been that odd for a lot of people in that day to go, What is that? What is that insane star there that shouldn't be there? The wise men saw it and they knew what it was. They said, well, we've seen this in a story. We've seen this in the ancient texts. Let's go check it out. The word star here is austere. It's where we get the word asteroid. There's a lot of scholars and you can, go, you can Google this if you want. It'd be a fun thing to do with your kids. I think it's called, there's this documentary series called The Bethlehem Star. I think is what it's called. But it's, it'd be a fun watch for your children. These scholars have gotten together to try to suggest some natural explanation for why this star appeared and how it seemed to hover in this certain spot. And that's really neat. I think that that documentary series is fascinating. They talk about the idea that it's a conjunction, I think, is their their final summation, that Jupiter and Saturn aligned at this time period and it caused this bright spot that seemed to show in one spot. I love their effort in trying to prove something natural. I would argue, though, this is supernatural. I would say a God who can invent the stars can decide, I'm going to take this star and just kind of move it around the sky for a little while. I don't really need the natural explanation here. The reason being, I believe in a really big God. A God who created all this stuff. So maybe he did it in a natural way. I'll make a conjunction of two, two planets. See? He could have done that. But he easily could have just taken a star that was way off and just threw it. Check this out. He could have done that. Nothing stops him. He's creator God. And I would argue that there's some phenomenons that happen in this story that don't make a lot of sense. It says that the star rose. That's strange. And it also seems to indicate that the star is on the move, which makes it some type of comet or something. It's supernatural. And it's purposely a fulfillment of some messianic prophecies. 
I love this prophecy. It actually comes from the mouth of a man named Balaam who was sent to curse God's people. And every time he opened his mouth, he couldn't help but bless them. That's a wonderful thing. I'm going to pay you, Balaam. I want you to go down there and I want you to curse the people of God. All right, I'm telling you, I'm trying to do it. But every time I open my mouth, God just makes me blessed. And then this great prophecy in the book of Numbers 24 comes out of the mouth of this bad guy named Balaam. Numbers 24, 17, it says, A star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. There's a battle, my friends, for your worship. This this battle will master you if you allow it. This is what Jesus says in Luke 16. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, I chose the King, New King James there because a lot of our versions, modern versions, say money. And that's definitely in view. You can't serve and be loyal to both God and money. But it's bigger than that. This term here means material. It means material things. That which you can buy with money for sure, but bigger than that. Possessions. It says you can't serve that and God equally. It's not how it works. The world battles constantly for our love and for our desire. This is what John writes in 1 John 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. I want to argue for something here that I believe there's been a battle for your worship for humanity's worship before the earth was even formed. We get this story in the book of Isaiah about Lucifer who was cast down from heaven. This is what Lucifer says. That is really the nature that he's now trying to influence us with. He says in Isaiah 14, I will make myself like the Most High God. This is the thing that Lucifer, the the fallen angel, who we now know as Satan or the devil, this is what he says that causes him to be cast out. I I will be like God. He was the most beautiful angel. God made him powerful, and yet he saw all of those wonderful things and said, well, I am great rather than he is great. That's the decision he makes, and it gets him cast out. And what is the very thing he tempts Eve with? It's the same logic. Look at Genesis 3. He says, God knows that when you eat of it, the the forbidden fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And Isaiah says, I will make myself like God. Now, in this fallen state, he's tempting Adam and Eve. You will be like God. This is the temptation constantly for your worship. And you don't always put it together and see it for what it is. But when you focus constantly on, i got to make my career right. i got to find success in this. I've got to do I, I, I. And every sentence starts with I. You start to go, wait a minute. When did I get on the throne of my life? When did I make this decision that I can be like God? I don't think Christians do this on purpose. It happens to us accidentally. And yet after years of it, it begins to really damage our lives. We begin to wonder, how did we get in this scenario? I'm convinced that there have been things I've done in my life that I just bull bull in a china shop to got my way in there. And then after I was doing the job for a while, I went, I really hate this. (laughs) I really, what am I doing here? And the doors that God was trying to shut, I just kept kicking them in. Because I assume somewhere along the way, well, just because there's resistance, 
Maybe that's God's trying to test me, and I could do this. And rather than just take a moment and go, God, what are you up to? Some of you who know me well know I, I just, I'm willing to just suffer and just keep working at it, even when God is clearly saying, no, this isn't, I want, I want this for you, not this. And I'm still guilty of that. I still have to wrestle with that to not let my first step be, all right, here I go, rather than, God, what are you up to? My first step is not often prayer. And this is a sign of my heart of worship. is not quite where it should be. I like to take the first step over the cliff and then as I'm falling go, God, help! I still love Him. I still worship Him. I just forgot. Wait a minute. Before I take the leap, let me ask. I've been like this since I was a little kid. We'd show up at a pool. I couldn't even swim. I'd just look at it and go, woohoo! You know, that's just, my dad tells stories like that all the time. I just take the leap rather than ask questions. And it's gotten me in a lot of trouble in this life. But I think a lot of us are this way. That whether it's making a big step or a small step, our first, our first move is often, I can, I want, I believe. Our sentences start with I rather than, God, what would you have me be? What would you have me do? And this is the first step in a move to worship that can change our hearts from taking them off our idols, which could be many things. Sometimes even our own success could be like an idol. Now, when we turn and say, all right, God, your will be done, not my own. Your will be done. Satan's never going to stop us from worshiping. He's perfectly happy with our shape that we are built for worship. He just wants to guide that in all the wrong ways. (laughs) And he's really good at it. He's been doing it a very long time. So let's not be deceived. There's a war for our worship. Here's the second step. Recognize there's a war, but then overcome it. Overcome that temptation by spending, overcome the temptation to spend your worship wrongly. Overcome the temptation to spend your worship wrongly. This is verses 4 through 8. We see this this unpacking happening where, where Herod says some things that are just straight up not true. He assembles the chief priests together. He's asking them, what, what, are, what are the Magi talking about? What are these wise men talking about? And they come now reciting the book here of, of Micah saying, Bethlehem, that's where he's supposed to be born. He's, he's supposed to rise as a shepherd for his people. And this gets the people all riled up and troubled. Bethlehem, the city of David, that's where the, that's where the Messiah is to be born. That name, Bethlehem, means house of bread. Where the bread of life, as Jesus later puts himself, is born. And he's born secretly. And Herod then asks secretly, where is this place? So that he could mislead the Magi. He's, he's this puppet king in the story. He's supposed to be a placeholder for you and I. There's a reason that he's kind of influential in this piece of scripture. And not really much so after this point. The reason being is he's supposed to be a marker to us of false king, of false worship, and what it looks like. What it looks like is a conniving behind the scenes, doing something secret behind your back. That's what the false king looks like. And he's trying to steal your worship. And it looks like a lot of different things now. It may not even be a person or some concept. It, 1 Timothy, Paul writes, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and into destruction. He says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. 
And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Notice he says the love of money is the root. People get this wrong a lot. They say money is the root. It's not what the text says. Money is neutral. It is uh, something you need to buy things. You should make some. You know, Paul talks about that in another place. He says, the, the one who will, does not make enough to take care of his family is worse than an unbeliever. That's a very strong thing to say. No, Paul is not telling Timothy, hey, don't work. Don't make money. You can be just dependent on everybody else in your life. That is not the gospel. But what he is saying is the, the love of money will bring you to great temptation where you've made the decision that the thing I want most in this life, the thing I'm really wanting to achieve more than anything else is I want the big house and the white picket fence. I want the pool in my backyard. I do want a pool in my backyard. That'd be nice. It's hot down here. And yet, where is that in my priorities? Where is that in the love scale of my life? God first. There's this temptation and it is great. John writes in 1 John, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? I'm going to give you another Satan story. This, that's a twofer. I don't normally do this, but... There's this other passage where Satan appears in the early days of Jesus' ministry where he's in the wilderness to be tempted. And here's the ways that he tempts Jesus. And I want to argue something for you. that this is, this is good for your understanding of your own personal temptations. That Jesus is kind of a good example here in the wilderness of the ways you might be tempted. First, he tempts him with his hunger. With his appetite. Now, you might take that literally. Perhaps you are struggling with gluttony. I don't think that's the point of this temptation. But perhaps for you, that's something to deal with. No, he's... I think talking more about these innate desires that often get twisted. We have a desire to do things, to do great things. There's a built-in desire that I want to be successful. I want to do whatever it is that I've been shaped to do in this life, and I want to do it well. That's a good thing. I want, to, I want to make sure that I take good care of my family. I want to make sure that there's a roof over my head. I want to make sure that I've got food on the table. Those are good. But notice the temptation here. Satan tempts him to do something that's not natural. He says, turn the stones into bread. That's how he tempts Jesus. And yet Jesus is in this purposeful time of fasting. It's a, something that had been prophesied that Jesus knows he must do as part of his process. So he tempts him with his appetite. The second one, and maybe the, more, the much more dangerous one, is he tempts him with his identity. He tempts him with his appetites. Then he tempts him with his identity. He says, if you are the Son of God, if you are indeed who you say you are, then I can, you know, I'll give you all of this land. I'll do all this for you. If you are who you say. This is, this is like the temptation that I think I fight more than anything. When I look in the mirror, I don't know what happens to you guys, but when I look in the mirror, I get that question of, did you really get called to do what you're doing? Are you really who you say you are? You know? Are you really cut out to be a parent? That one's hit me at times. Because I still feel like a kid. I don't know how y'all feel. I'm 37. I get that. And yet I feel 17. 
in my heart. I still look, I look around and go, how do I have four kids? How is one of them a teenager? What is going on? I feel like I should go back home where my mom can make me cookies and dinner. That's how I feel at times. And yet it's not reality. And so I question these identities. I, I certainly question often. And I know it's the temptation of my flesh or the evil one that says, Jonathan, are you sure that you're called? Are you sure that you should be in this pastoral role? And I know it's different for each of you. I wonder how God, or I wonder how the evil one questions your identity. I wonder if he's the one that, that shows up when you look in the mirror and you've just had a fight with your spouse and you're like, did I make the right choice? Where you go, hmm, maybe I should leave him. Maybe I should leave her. And that identity check, do I really belong in this situation? This job is getting a little hard. This career path, I'm not sure about it. At, at the time, I thought God had called me to it, but it's getting rocky. I'm not sure it's where I should be. Constantly questioning one's identity. Are you sure you're the son of God? Are you sure you should be doing what you're doing? You see that temptation? It's real. You insert where it is for you. Here's the third temptation that we see here. He tempts him for his worship. This is all in Matthew chapter 4, in case you're curious. He says, all these things I will give you. It's funny that Satan says, I can give you all this stuff to the one who created all this stuff. That's fascinating to me that Satan is so foolish. But, but don't, he, is, he is a slippery snake. He's deadly. He's dangerous. But he has, he's no match for the Savior. Let's, let's be thankful for that. To which Jesus says in Matthew 4.10, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him alone shall you serve. There's a battle, my friends, for your appetites, for your identity, and certainly for your worship. How, do we, how might we overcome this? I wonder, will you spend some time this Christmas worshiping the Savior? Pull away from all of the all of the, the traditions and all the things that you've done. Start some new traditions. I'll give you some, some ideas of things you might do with your family. This is something we do that I find really redeeming. We take time every Christmas Eve, although this year I'll be here with you guys. This year we're doing Christmas Eve Eve. That's what we're doing, but we're going to get together and really read Luke 2 together. We're going to get one of the youngsters to read it. Whoever's Normally, whoever's just figuring out how to read, and they get to read Quirinius as governor and all that, and they go, Dad, I don't, know, I don't know this word. And it's fun. Read Luke 2 together and discuss that story with family. And then we take time to, to talk about our year, often sharing the things that have been hardest, the things we've wrestled with, maybe the things God has done in our life, the things we're thankful for. We kind of take time every Christmas Eve, this year Christmas Eve Eve, to, to discuss spiritual things. But what can you do? What, what can you do this year? Christmas Day, we're not going to be here together on a Sunday morning. Maybe pause after, after you open the presents or whatever your habits are. Maybe beforehand and just have a time of prayer with your children, with your, with your spouse, with your kids who are coming in. How do you get the worship back focused on Jesus? Well, pause some other things that you might can insert and find value again. And the reason that we do Christmas all together. Now, here's the third step, third and final step. Choose to worship the true king who is Christ Jesus. This is how the story ends. Verses 9 and on, this, this miraculous star now rises and goes before them and rests over this place where the child is. And they come to a house. You'll notice it says there in verse 11, and going into the house... 
So again, you're, you're gonna, you really what you should do is have the manger scene here and then build yourself a little house over here for the wise men. Just totally blow your mantle all to pieces. There you go. But that's, that's the nature of this, this story is that they come to the house and they come see this child. This child is probably close to two years old at this point, not a newborn. The baby Jesus is now toddler Jesus running, running around the house perhaps. And they come and they see him. They see Mary. And what do they do? It says they fall down and worship. The word here, fall down, is the word pipto, which means literally to lay on one's face, to lay prostrate before someone. They see Jesus, and I don't know what it is about him. I don't know exactly what it is. Maybe it's the star. Maybe it's the travel. Maybe it's just the whole nature of the experience. But something about it, when they see Christ, they know it's him. They fall on their face and worship. And they give him gifts. This is what worship looks like, my friends. This is really a good picture, just in a couple of verses of what worship is about. Some, uh, someone has defined it this way. I don't remember where I got this. I've been saying this for a while. But there's two components to worshiping Christ as king. And that is, number one, recognize what he's worth. Number two, give him what he's worth. Recognize what he's worth. Give him what he's worth. That's what worship really is. I see Jesus. I know what he's done. He set me free. He saved me. He sanctified me. I know that. And so now I'm giving him my life. The, the only thing I know to give back is all that I have. I give him all. And that's what the Magi did. They fell on their face. They worshipped. And they gave the gifts that they had brought. This is an entourage, most likely. They come with, with great gifts. They had made a, quite a scene in Jerusalem. I don't think they make quite a scene with just three guys on camels rolling in. No, there's, there's probably an envoy. There's probably 30. Because they've come through the desert. They've come through some difficult places where there are robbers. I guarantee you they've brought an entourage into town and it has created a stir. So now they show up to see Jesus and they unpack some big gifts. Some of them are strange. Some of them are spices designed for burial. Isn't that interesting? It's like they know. Now, they probably brought them thinking these are expensive gifts that they might trade or sell. And, but I would say there's a bigger meaning to that, why they would bring such a spice Three very expensive gifts. They chose to serve. They chose to worship. They chose to go out of their way to meet this Jesus that they might worship him. This is what the prophets say. This is what the gospels say. In Joshua 24, it says, verse 15, Choose today whom you will serve. But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. Paul writes this in Romans 12. Also, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you, to give your bodies to God because of all He has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind He will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship Him. Truly the way. A practical way to pull our worship away from everything, this, this um, impulse of the season, would be to be way more generous right now. Generous not just financially. That might be something you could do. I'm talking bigger. How might you be generous over the next few weeks with your time? Maybe there's people coming to town in your life, family members, and some of you are dreading that. There's some people showing up at your house, or maybe you're going to theirs in the next few weeks, and you're thinking, here we go again, that time of year where I get to fight with my cousin or whatever. What would it look like to be more generous? What would it look like to take some time? My, my family, I'm going to end with this illustration, but my family's kind of, a, a, a group of storytellers, especially on my dad's side. And something about my dad that 
that he has and has been passed down to him for generations, is they'll tell you the same story again and again. Because I, I, anytime there's a new person that might have showed up in the room, they know, well, that person's never heard the story, so now everybody's getting that story again. I've heard some of my dad's stories a thousand times, at least. And it's because now I have kids, and some of my new, the younger kids, haven't heard these stories yet, and they love them. They eat them up. And I, at times you might get this this. I'm just going to walk away. He's telling that story again, and it's not just him. This was the nature of my family. And my, just so you all know, my Uncle Donnie, boy, that, he was quite the storyteller, and he'd tell stories over and over again. And I can tell you right now, I would pay good money for him to be here to sit down and tell me the same story I've heard a thousand times. I'd listen to it a thousand more if I could. It's about being generous with the time that you have with people. And being willing to listen, being willing to conversate with some of those family members, some of those co-workers. You've got co-workers right now that I know they are just really annoying people. Probably each and every one of you have some co-workers. If you're working in an in a atmosphere that's got a decent amount of employees, employers, there's some difficult people in there. Some people you don't want to listen to because you're tired of them. What would it look like to be more generous with your time? More generous with your conversation. What would it look like to give back more? We're collecting today. I, I mentioned this last week, but we're collecting our Christmas missions offering today to support our international missionaries. All of this money will go there. None of it stays here. None of it sits in some account. We send every bit of it. And there's two families in particular, I mentioned this last week, that we're really praying for. And if that's all you can do, my friend, that's a, that's a lot. Be in prayer for them. We want you to be in prayer for them. Uh, there's two families that we have currently in Turkey. And just so you know, Turkey is a, a, quite a mission field. Uh, predominantly Islamic. Uh, not, not a huge cr Christian presence there at all. But we have two missionaries there. One family uh, really received the call of the gospel at our church, at our Wilson campus. And so we're very proud of them. But they don't even have a car right now. They don't even have a vehicle to, to, to get around. And so they're just making do walking. Uh, but we would like to support them um, with, an, with an offering between our, our two campuses. And there's another family whose rent just went through the roof because, well, the government found out they were a church, and why not raise their rent? And so these are some of the things we're supporting this year. So if, if, you, if you desire to be generous in your giving, please do so. Christmas missions offering. Let's continue now with worship. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask... We ask that you would bless us in such a way that we might bless others. That the reason for the blessing you've given would be that we could help others to see you. That they would glorify you as well. That the gospel would be made known and clear. God, would you do that in us and through us? I recognize this time of year is interesting because there are a lot of opportunities for the good news. and Sometimes we just blatantly miss them whether it's our own just frustration or what, or maybe we just need to, we feel like we need to pull away. God, give us energy, energize us this season to be with family members, be with coworkers as we finish up the year, that we would be a good witness, that the light would shine through us and in us, and that people would see Jesus this season. If nothing else, God, would you do that through our church and our church members, that people would see Jesus in us, that the incarnation is more than just a story, that this Christmas holiday is more than just consumers and, and, and all of this lights and all this hoopla. And some of that stuff's really neat, God. But if, if it doesn't have you, 
It is is no holiday worth celebrating. So God, I pray that people would see you this season. And would you use us to do that? I'm praying uniquely for those people in the room that are struggling with their worship. That there's a lot of other things that have gotten, gotten in the way. Perhaps they don't, they don't know what they should be doing right now. They're, they're, really, they're really not sure about this identity question. That if Satan is, is in fact tempting them for their identity, they're super confused. God, would you restore them now? Give them clear vision that they might see where you're leading them. That they might know the purpose you've given for them. God, restore us in those many ways. Help us with these many temptations. Help us to take our eyes off material things, the next big American dream that we've put our whole heart on. We've been hurt by that in the past, God, and yet we're, we still fall into those traps. God, would you protect us? And help us to see you in what you're doing. Help us to worship you with everything in spite of sickness, in spite of what hurts, in spite of the fact that right now maybe there's, there's, there's a broken relationship. In spite of what we're facing right now, God, help us to focus and put our worship on you this season and that it would affect those around us, that people would come to Christ at Christmas. I pray that. Do that miraculous work in us and through our church. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.